Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Now let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, today is the last of uh, the sermons from Amos. I almost didn't say that for fear of spontaneous applause. (laughs) Amos is a tough book, isn't it? We said that at the beginning. Lots of uh, judgment imagery. It's a lot of bad news. Today's title is Now for the Good News. One of my favorite uh, Sunday morning cartoon strips had a cartoon once in which the king is sitting in his castle He's obviously anxiously awaiting news from the battlefront. And finally, he sees a rider approaching in the distance. It's a soldier who's bringing news of how the battle is going. And he rushes into the king's chambers. And the king says, well, how's it going? He says, do you want the good news or the bad news? The king says, give me the bad news first. He said, the bad news is there is no good news. That may be how some of you are thinking about the book of Amos. There seems to be no good news, but you've made it to the end. And in the last few verses of Amos, there's good news. The ninth and final chapter, God shows up to judge and he begins his judgment in a place of worship. Now that is logical because one of the sins of the nation of Israel that he was so angry about was their hypocritical worship. On one hand, they knew the law that God was a jealous God, that he would not compete with other gods. They were mixing their affections for him with devotion to false gods. And even when they worshiped the true God, they were giving lip service to loving his word and yet they were not obeying the law. They were guilty of cheating the poor. Uh, They were oppressing those who were less fortunate. They were being dishonest with one another and with their neighbors. In short, they were defaming the good name of God. And then, In the end, there's some good news. I think all of us need some good news this morning. So let's read all the way through the ninth chapter. Amos writes, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and bring them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there will I bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtar and the Aramaeans from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, 
For behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip with wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted from the land which I've given them, says the Lord your God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now you might have noticed in those 15 verses, it divides itself quite clearly into three sections. And I've titled those three sections for our points today, God's power, God's promise, and God's plan. In the first six verses of chapter nine, we see God's power. You remember that in the last three chapters of Amos that we have studied, God reveals himself to Amos the prophet in a series of visions, five in total. The first vision is of locusts who come and devour the produce of the land after the king has taken his portion. And so the implication is the people are going to starve to death. And Amos, of course, is brokenhearted over this vision. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He begs God not to send the locusts. And God hears his prayers and answers it. He does not send the locusts. And in the second vision, it's the vision of fire. And like the locusts, the fire consumes the grain of the land. The people are going to starve. And again, the prophet intercedes and says, Lord, don't do this. And he doesn't. But the third vision is of a plumb line, a carpenter's tool. And he says, I'm going to hold a plumb line in the land. That is, I'm going to measure the people and their affection towards me. And of course, the implication is that they were not aligned with God. This time, Amos does not pray for the people because God has declared it's too late. And the fourth vision is similar to that. He sees a basket of summer fruit. Fruit is so ripe that it can't last even another day. And God says, your sin is before me. It is ripened to its fullest. I can't hold back judgment another day. And in the fifth vision we see here in chapter nine, God shows up. He says, I saw the Lord beside the altar. In the Hebrew, it actually says on the altar. God's angry. He's not there to meet and commune with the people. He's there to judge the people. And it probably shocked the Israelites to see God at the place of worship because their hearts were so far from God. The last thing they thought they'd see at a place of worship was God show up. I know a lot of churches like that. They've become so distant and cold from God and they're involved in their own activities in the name of the church that if God were to show up, I think they'd be shocked. We should not be shocked because here's where we come to commune with the Lord and to worship him corporately, and so he shows up not to bless, but to judge. And he calls out to some entity that is not named here to take action. He says, strike the capitals that the thresholds may fall around them. Probably an angel. God often used angels to bring about judgment. The capitals, as you know, were the tops of the columns that held up these great temples. 
And to strike the capital was to cause those columns to give way. When the columns gave way, the weight of the building would fall upon the people and crush them to death. And if any of those were getting away, he says, then I will command and they will be killed with a sword. And yet he knew the heart of these wicked people. They, they were so grossly in sin that even when the prophet declared that they're all about to die, he knew their heart well enough to say, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'll escape. I'll sneak out the back door. I've got a great hiding place out in the mountains somewhere. The Lord can't catch up to me. And so to prove to them that he is all powerful and he's omniscient and he's omnipotent, he says, if you say, I will dig down to Sheol, I'll find you there. That is, if you had the equipment and long enough time and you dug all the way to the center of the earth, God would find you there. He says, even if you said, I will ascend to heaven. If somehow you, you could get in a rocket ship and go to the moon, I'll find you there, he says. If you could go to the bottom of the sea, I'll cause serpents to bite you there. He says, if you go into captivity, I'll kill you there with a sword. That is, there's nowhere you can hide. There's nothing to be done. There's nowhere to go. God's eye is set against you. As Christians, we love to declare that God's on our side, right? We love to quote the verse that says, if God is for us, finish it. Who can be against us, right? We love that verse. Many of you have it framed in your houses. But the other side of that is just as true. If God is against you, who can be for you? It is hopeless and helpless. And this is what he says is the condition of the nation of Israel. Verse four, he says, I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. We comfort ourselves as God's people with his attributes. 11 years ago when I became your pastor, I began with an eight sermon series on the attributes of God. We talked about his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and all those things we, we say are true of God that bring us comfort as his people. Remember what David said, Psalm 139, 7, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell into the othermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. David found comfort in God's attributes, but the wicked should not. The unrepentant shouldn't take no joy in the fact that God is an omnipotent, omniscient judge. Because that means he knows every thought we've ever thought, every deed we've ever done, every motive behind any of those things, and he takes note of those. And he's powerful enough to do something about it. We laugh when someone has anger when they're not powerful enough to do anything about it. A child throwing a tantrum, we, we, we point and we laugh. I remember a couple years ago when my son Andrew was three, he wanted to go fishing with me one day. And so I took he and his uh, sister Aubrey up to the local lake and we're fishing from the bank and I was uh, baiting the hook of his sister Aubrey. Literally we'd been there less than a minute. When I hear splash, and I look over and Andrew had just got his first pair of prescription glasses. And he was face down in the water and when he came up out of the water, both lenses were covered in mud and he couldn't see a thing. And it was one of the funniest sights I've seen in a long time. <laughs> and I started laughing. 
And Andrew stomped his foot and he said, I don't like it. But he was three years old and there was nothing to be done. God's not like an angry child throwing a tantrum with no ability to correct the situation. God is angry to be sure, but he's powerful enough to do something about his anger. He's omnipotent and that should not bring comfort to the wicked. It should bring chills of fear. God's power. Now in the second section, we see God's promise. Look at verse seven of Amos nine. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? God is speaking to his chosen people, Israel. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. For I've brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtar and the Arameans from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. One of the great mistakes that the Israelites of Amos' day is the same mistake their descendants would make during the time of Christ. And that is to believe that because they were Jewish, they had nothing to fear when they sinned. That God would not punish their sin because of their genetics. And remember I told you when we started this series that the, the key to understanding Amos is to understand Romans chapter two, verse 11. When the apostle Paul writes, as it relates to God's judging people, that there is no partiality with God. God judges all people and God judges all sins. And so God says, look, I'm treating you just like I treat Ethiopians or Philistines or Arameans. I provide for them, but I also punish them when they sin. And here's the promise in verse eight, I will destroy the nation that sins from the face of the earth. That is the nation of Israel will cease to exist. And yet he holds out some hope. He says, nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. That is, the Lord recognizes that there is always a remnant of the righteous, even when a nation is overwrought with sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We cannot think of a more wicked place than that. In fact, the very name of Sodom is synonymous with heinous sin and always will be. And yet God warned Lot, the Bible called him righteous Lot, to get out before the judgment came. And here he says here, I will shake the house of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Now a sieve was an instrument that farmers used. Here's Amos using agricultural again. And so they would take the grain, they would lay it out and the grain had a husk on it that you cannot eat, you cannot digest. So they had to somehow separate the husk from the grain. And so they would take it and they'd take a sieve and they would throw it in the air and let it fall and throw it in the air and, and let it fall until the wind would take away the husk from the grain and nothing but the good grain was left. He says, that's what I'm gonna do through judgment. I'm gonna separate the righteous from the wicked. He says, and so even though apparently most of the people are going to be destroyed, not all. He says, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. And so God is promising to judge. He says, I'm going to shake the house of Israel among the nations. Now this is exactly what happened. Remember, he says, the nation is going to cease to exist. And it did 
in the way that the northern kingdom had existed before. They were taken away to captivity and from there spread out all over the world. The 10 lost tribes of Israel, we call them, right? And they're spread to this good day all over the world. Did you know there are less than 20 million Jewish people in the whole world? That's less than the population of Texas. In reality, there's probably only like 12 or 14 million. And half of those live in the United States. And so the others are spread literally hundreds of other countries around the world. And yet they have an identity. They still exist, which tells me this. God's not done with Israel. God still has a plan for them. In fact, one of the things that gives me faith that the Bible is true is the survival of Israel. Even through the ages as kingdom and nation regime have tried to stamp out Jewish people from the face of the earth and been unsuccessful in doing so. God is preserving them even as they're spread out among the nations. And that brings us to our third and final point, and that is God's promise, excuse me, uh, God's plan, the restoration of Israel. Look at verse 11. He says, in that day, he's speaking of the day of restoration. I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Now, David was a great king, right? And we're told that he lived in a magnificent palace. But here it says the booth of David. A booth is a tent, a tabernacle, we could say. Remember when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after God brought them out of Egypt, they lived in tents, booths. In fact, they have a festival called the Festival of Booths where they set up these tents to remember what it was like before they had a homeland. And he says, I'm going to raise up this fallen booth of, of David. He says, I'm going to wall up its breaches, the holes that were knocked by their enemies. I'm going to repair. I'm going to rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess, that is Israel, the remnant of Edom, and the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. This is imagery of restoration, that God is going to bring back people that he has spread out all over the world and he's going to restore them and he's going to restore the land. The remnant of Edom, Edomites were, were Gentiles. And he says this, in those days the plowman will overtake the reaper. Again, Amos is a farmer. And his favorite image of restoration had to do with agriculture. He speaks here of a bumper crop. The image is this, the land is gonna be so fertile and so productive that before they get through harvesting one crop, it's going to be time to plant the next. And there's going to be this cycle of this continually of nothing but bumper crops and, and prosperity. He says the land's going to drip with wine. It's going to dissolve the hills. It's going to flow with milk and honey, we used to say. It's going to be an incredible time of prosperity among God's people. You talk about rich soil, that gets the attention of, of farmers, doesn't it? I heard about a, a farmer who uh, brought in a load of topsoil and he was bragging about how rich his bottom land was. And so the guy was talking to him uh, a little bit later, says, is this really rich soil that you brought in on the flatbed yesterday? He said, well, let me just tell you this. Every time I came to an underpass, I had to get out and mow the top. That's rich soil, isn't it? That seems to be how, how productive and how fertile the land's going to be during this time of restoration. And he says the cities and farms 
are going to be rebuilt. Those that were destroyed as their enemies came in. And, and he says, this is going to be a permanent condition. Look at verse 15. I will also plant them, that is the people in the land, just as he's going to plant the vineyards and the crops, I'm going to plant the people in the land and they will not again be rooted from their land. That is, this is going to be a, a permanent condition. Now, how are we to understand this passage? Well, some have, have looked historically and they've said, well, well, the Babylonian captives came back led by Nehemiah and Ezra and they rebuilt Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the walls. So surely this is what it means. Well, except for the fact that he says, I'm going to raise up the booth of David, the kingdom of David. The, the kingdom of David was not restored even though they rebuilt the walls and the temple. So it can't mean that. And some have seen when the nation of Israel was reestablished in 1948, some of you are old enough to remember that, that after World War II, the Zionist movement set aside the homeland of Israel for Jewish people who had been disenfranchised to come back to Israel. And they did. They reestablished the nation. And today there is a nation called Israel again. First time in hundreds of years. And that may be a partial fulfillment. And yet we know there's not been a kingdom of David restored yet. There's still no temple worship. And so I think the only obvious answer is the one in the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that when Jesus returns, he's going to make things right that were made wrong because of sin in the world, right? He's going to restore the land. He's going to restore the nation of Israel. He's going to rule on his throne from Jerusalem for his thousand year millennial kingdom reign. And I take that to be literal. Those of you that were here when we studied the book of Rome, uh, Revelation on Wednesday night, that's my eschatology, is that when Jesus returns, he's going to set up a thousand-year reign, and then we'll have uh, the eternal state after that. This is what Luke 1 says, speaking of the Messiah. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? David. For, for the Messianic prophecy to be fulfilled, the Messiah had to trace his lineage to King David based upon this and other Messianic prophecies. That's why the book of Matthew gives us such a detailed description of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus to show that he indeed traces his ancestors all the way back through David. He fulfills this prophecy. It's not just in the New Testament. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30 says this, all these things will come upon you. He's speaking to Israel. All of these things will come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you will call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Note that. They were spread out all over the world. God is the one who did it. And he says, there's coming a day when you will return to the Lord your God, you and your children. You will obey his voice in all that I command you today. In all your heart and all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you. God predicted it. Zechariah 12.10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. They will have pleas for mercy so that they look on me on whom they have pierced. Now, who have they pierced? The Lord Jesus. This is hundreds of years before the cross event. He predicts it. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. This is amazing. 
You remember in chapter eight, we saw last week, I said the, 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 most, or the most difficult kind of grief is a, a parent who's lost a child, particularly an only son. And he says, there's coming a day when you're gonna weep like that, not over the Assyrians destroying your land, but over grief when he convicts you of what you've done. And what they had done is they had rejected their Messiah. They had put him upon a cross, but this is the good kind of grief, right? Because the Bible says that godly sorrow leads to what? Repentance. And the Bible teaches that one day there is gonna be a great national revival among God's chosen people. Romans chapter 11 says that all Israel is gonna be saved and he's gonna draw them back into himself. I said this Wednesday night, we were studying Romans. I think one of the most incongruous things in the world is when people claiming to be Christians are anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. Because if it weren't for the Jewish people, none of us would be here. Because after all, our savior was Jewish, right? And he told the woman at the well that salvation is of who? The Jews. In fact, Paul says, here's what God did. He broke off some of the limbs from his olive shoot. The olive shoot was Israel. And those limbs were those unbelieving Jews who had to judge. And he says he grafted in, in their place, a wild olive shoot. Those were Gentiles. And most of us here fall in that category, right? And he grafted us into that tree, the plan he had for Israel. So we haven't replaced Israel. We've become part of Israel, right? And we've become Jewish indeed. And now what's gonna happen, but the Bible's very clear on this, when Jesus returns, he's gonna set up the kingdom and his people are going to be made up of every tribe and tongue and people group, including those Jewish people who are now gonna receive him as their Messiah. I told you it has some good news today, right? And there it is. Except for the fact that if you reject the Messiah, this is not good news for you. Because the only people who are going to be welcome into that kingdom are those who have bowed their knee to the Lordship of Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, Ethiopian, Philistine, Aramean, Chinese, you call it. What about you? Is this promise for you? Or will you be judged? Now we look back historically at, at Israel and say, wow, God judges sin. Well, here's the thing about God's character. Remember we talked about his attributes? He's omnipotent. He can do anything he pleases to do. He's omniscient. He's everywhere at once. He knows everything at once. Here's another one of his attributes. He is immutable. He does not change, which means if he hates and judges sin in the 8th century BC, he hates and judges sin in 21st century AD, right? which means if he judged then, he'll judge today. Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Dear friend, that means you. That means me. It's appointed to every person to die and then to be judged. You'll either be judged based on the perfect life of Jesus that has been accrued to your account because of the shed blood and toning work on the cross and your faith in him, or... He will judge you based on your life, your deeds, your motives. Here's the sad news. 
For anyone who he judges on their life, their deeds, and the mo their motives, that person will not stand the day of judgment. We've all fallen short there, right? But for everyone who put their faith and trust in Christ, there is no condemnation for those people because they are in Christ. They are covered. He intercedes for them. He stands between them and the righteous wrath of God. What about you? Is the story that God is a judge He's omnipotent, that he's omniscient. Is that comforting to you because you know that you're in Jesus? Or does it strike fear in your heart? If it strikes fear in your heart, that's a good indication that you don't know Jesus. And so I invite you one more time today, here at this last week of the study of the book of Amos. Humble yourself before him. Call out to him. You have to do it on his terms. His terms are this, you have to come before him with empty hands and outturned pockets, with the attitude of the tax collector, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And for everyone who will come on his terms, he will hear them, he will save them, he'll give you a home in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are grateful for the warnings of the book of Amos because we know you're the same God today as you were then. And Father, we know by and large we live in a very wicked land as well. People are hypocritical in worship. They have false gods. There is immorality that is rampant. Lord, there is mistreatment of people that you love. There is wholesale rejection of your word. And Father, we know that you brought judgment to Israel for those things, and you have changed none. So, Lord, we intercede as Amos did for the people of his day. Lord, we pray you'd stay your hand one more day. Lord, I pray instead of judgment, you'd send revival. I pray, Lord, you'd send a great movement of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray you'd save the lost and cause Christians to, to turn to you if they've grown cold in their walk with you. Father, I thank you that uh, one day you're gonna make right everything that was made wrong in this world because of sin in its presence. But until then, Father, we have a task and that is to take the good news message to all the world, Jew and Gentile alike. And so, Father, we thank you for that privilege. Help us to be found faithful, so doing when you come to set up your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.